So if you are new, um, or even if you're not, we, we are a church that puts a high priority on preaching and teaching through the Bible. We believe that God has spoken in words that are true and authoritative and trustworthy in this book, in these books. God has revealed himself, revealed his salvation, um, and revealed things about ourselves as well, um, what our purpose is in life, what we are here for. So currently we are going through the book or letter of 1 Corinthians in the second part of the Bible. We started a new section on this letter last week in chapter 12, uh, this section from, from chapters 12 through 14 on spiritual gifts. Uh, if you missed last week, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that sermon on, on the website because it sets the stage for the rest of this section. Um, we covered the f first three verses last week. Today we get into uh, the meat, if you will, of, of this topic. And we have a lot to cover. Um, we're only going to cover eight verses, but there's a lot in these verses for us to talk about. Uh, so I'm going to read, we're going to read this whole section up front, verses 4 through 11. Uh, we're going to spend the first part unpacking what spiritual gifts are and are for, and then we'll end by just walking through uh, some of the spiritual gifts that Scripture gives us. So let me read through the passage first. Starting, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So what are spiritual gifts and what are they for? Uh, I want to point out six things here. First, just a definition. What are spiritual gifts are manifestations of the Spirit, is what Paul says. So they are ways that God's Spirit, who indwells all of God's people, that's part of what it means to be a Christian, is that God is not just with you, but God has His Spirit inside of you, and that Spirit is manifesting Himself, in equip equipping and empowering you to to serve God, to serve others, to build up the church. So, fairly basic, that is what a spiritual gift is, a manifestation of the Spirit bearing, producing, working in the lives of God's people. Second, it says every believer is, is, has this. Every believer is given a manifestation of the Spirit. Verse 7, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit. So, if you have truly confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, and that is bearing fruit in your life, we talked about this last week, you have the Spirit in you. And that Spirit will equip and empower you to, 
for faithfulness to God, service to the church, and outreach to the world. One of the implications of this is this, this means that you don't need to go out and seek a second work of the Spirit, um, a, a baptism of the Spirit, as it's sometimes called, in order to be equipped for what God has for you, equipped for ministry. You are baptized in the Spirit when you become a Christian. From the moment of conversion, the Spirit indwells you. And, and, and the teaching that you can be saved but not have the Spirit and be equipped for life and ministry really flies against the whole point of Paul's teaching here, which is unity in the Spirit. Paul is urging the Corinthians to, to recognize that every person who confesses Jesus as Lord is someone that they should be united with in the Spirit, is someone that has gifts of the Spirit and is a benefit to the church. Which leads to the third thing to notice. Though the Spirit, though there is diversity in the way the Spirit works, this diversity is no excuse for division. Let me say that again. Though there is diversity in the way the Spirit works, this diversity is no excuse for division. The emphasis throughout this passage, both in the verses we looked at last week and, and as Paul goes on here, is unity. Notice how many times Paul emphasizes the same Spirit, one and the same Spirit. This is one and the same God working in various ways, giving various gifts. And so there is not a Spirit of the more uh, charismatic or um, miraculous gifts, and then a Spirit of the more natural-seeming gifts. There's no division between God's purposes in working one way in one person and one way in another person. For example, God equips some people to have more visible roles in the church, perhaps as a, an elder or a deacon, a ministry lead, have some teaching ability or offering words of wisdom and knowledge, and equips some people and calls some people to less visible roles, perhaps with the gifts of administration or helping or serving or having a strong faith. But it's the same God giving all of these gifts, empowering his people, working towards the same purpose. And the point here is that there, because of this, there should be no division between God's people. Fourth, these manifestations or gifts are for the common good. For the common good. Uh, when we get to chapter 14, we'll, we'll see that they are for the building up of the church, they are for the benefit of the church. Now, this doesn't mean there can be no personal benefits or uses to the gifts and the ways that God equips you, but the emphasis is not really on that. The emphasis is on the ways that we are equipped to serve the church. So the question isn't so much, what gifts do I have, but how is God equipping, calling me to serve his people? A lot of the discussion and approach to spiritual gifts today misses this and becomes very self-focused. Perhaps you've taken a spiritual gifts inventory or spiritual gifts test. I've taken a couple of these before, and perhaps there can be some benefit in them. But so easily, the focus just becomes about ourselves, understanding ourselves rather than serving others. Or it even becomes an excuse to not serve others because, well, God hasn't gifted me in these ways. Scripture actually tells us that God loves to use our weaknesses. The ways, the way that God wants to work through you might be in an area 
where you have no natural inclination or desire even. There may simply be an opportunity or a need, and God wants to show his provision by equipping you to serve in weakness and dependence on him. Fifth, the gifts each believer are given are ultimately determined by the will of God. Verse 11, the Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, there's a bit of tension here, as there usually is as we consider the relationship between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Uh, Because later Paul will say things like, earnestly desire the higher gifts, meaning gifts that more directly benefit the whole church. So there's no, nothing wrong with desiring or even, in a sense, seeking certain gifts or ways of service. Uh, for example, we are told that it is a good thing for elders to desire, if they are qualified and called, to desire that role. However, God ultimately determines the ways that we serve His church. It's not something for us to demand. Um, early on in ministry, I found myself wishing I had the abilities and the charisma of other ministry leaders. I was envious of those who were more charismatic in the sense of attracting people to their ministry. Even today, I look at many of you in the ways that God has equipped you to have a relationship with Him and to serve the church, and I find myself both thankful and sometimes longing to, you know, I wish I had that. Um, A few ladies were in here last month organizing costumes for the Christmas nativity, and I told them how thankful I was that God gives us different gifts and helps us find joy in different things because they were doing something that they found a ton of joy in. And they really found joy in it. So ultimately, we are in the sovereign and wise hands of God when it comes to how he equips us to serve his people. And then six, there is no definitive, exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. No definitive, exhaustive lists of the way God equips his people to serve one another. And we can see this in a, in a variety of ways. For one, the word used for spiritual gifts, charismata, simply means a gracious gift from God. And Paul uses the same word just to talk about salvation in general. He also uses the same word to say that some people have the spiritual gift of marriage and some people have the spiritual gift of singleness. So, in a sense, biblically, we're all charismatic. Understood biblically. A second way to see this is that there are five passages in Scripture that list spiritual gifts, and they're all different. There's some overlap, but... No list has all the same gifts as another, and so it's best to see these as various ways, some of the ways that God works, but we don't have any conclusive list. I think it's even appropriate to consider some of our backgrounds and experiences and things that God has brought us to and the various ways that that enables us to relate to and minister to one another in this. So, for example, perhaps you've been through some traumatic situation, and through that you've found comfort from God and and healing from God and His people and His Word, and you are equipped because of that to 
to speak into certain situations and offer that comfort to others. That could be a part of your spiritual gift. For this reason, I don't think we should feel too much pressure to figure out our spiritual gift. Oh, and here's the list. Certainly there is something to be said for trying to understand how God is using you. But we can make too much of that. Perhaps there's not even a word that sums up the way that God is calling you to serve. And perhaps the ways that God is calling you to serve today is different than another season. Again, this isn't so much about you, but about God using you in his church. And so even as we now briefly go through a list of spiritual gifts that Scripture gives us, don't take this as, well, I have to identify with one of these or I must not be a Christian. Again, the big idea, as you pull back and look at this, is that if you belong to God and his people through faith in Jesus... The Spirit of God is alive and active in you and is equipping you and empowering you to play an active role in the church and in building up those in the church and in making disciples. And what this means is that you are not merely a spectator. You are not merely a consumer. That's not what this is about. Church, church isn't merely about coming and, and consuming and being a spectator and taking we, as a church, don't exist to just put on a production that you find appealing and satisfying, and you consume some benefit of it, and you give so that we can keep doing this. That's what you find in many places, and it's fine in many places. You go see a movie, you go see a play, you take a cruise, you go eat at a restaurant, but that's not how the church operates. If you are a Christian, you are called to be an active participant in the church, to give yourself, to love and serve those God has put around you. There's certainly benefits in this, in this for you. You are loved and served as well, but there's also responsibilities. And perhaps in certain seasons you find that your bandwidth is such that you can't give a lot or give much at all. And that's fine. The church is here to support you in those times, but don't be content with only receiving only consuming, only taking in, but not contributing and serving. That is to deny that God has and is equipping you to serve the church. With the remainder of our time, I'm going to briefly explain the gifts that Scripture gives from the three main lists of gifts. So our current passage, as we read through it, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and then Romans 12, 6 through 8. If you want an easy way to remember all of those, they're all in chapters 12. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Uh, I'm going to save prophecy and tongues and interpretation of songs, tongues for the end as they warrant a little bit more explanation. And again, because these are lists are not exhaustive, definitive lists, we don't have a need to come up with precise technical definitions for all of these things. These are just some of the ways, and there's overlap, that God works. So starting in verse 8, we find utterance of wisdom and utterance of knowledge. These could be translated simply as word of wisdom and word of knowledge. Now, I don't 
think it's necessary to see these as overtly miraculous, such that you would say, well, God gave me a, a word, although that's possible. But this can simply be the ability to apply God's wisdom and knowledge to a particular situation with words. Perhaps this could even include the ability to easily recall and remember Scripture. So study Scripture. Next, we find faith. Now, certainly, every believer must have some faith, which we talked about last week. But perhaps God gives you an exceptionally strong and enduring measure of faith to believe He is who He has said He is and will do what He has promised. We have verses like, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Next, we find gifts of healing and working of miracles. So in Scripture, we see Jesus and His apostles uh, simply as they spoke the name of Jesus, healing people. I see no reason to say that God can't or doesn't do such things today. However, I don't see warrant for someone saying, I have the gift of healing and I can always heal someone as long as they have enough faith. We need to keep in mind God's sovereignty and God's will in this. Uh, D.A. Carson puts it nicely. He says something like, on the one hand, we must say, we must never say God can't. But on the other hand, we must never say God must. God, you must work in this way. You must do this. God may use us to heal, to have great faith, to move mountains, etc., or he may not. We don't get to control that. And, and this is much like prayer in general, right? We can pray expectantly. Um, as Ephesians 3 says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And we should pray knowing that God can work in ways beyond that we can even conceive of. But in the end, we must leave the result in his hands. Next, we have the ability to distinguish between spirits. Um, I take this to be something along the lines of what we would call discernment in the matters of spiritual things, discerning whether someone or something is of God or is not. And this could come from either some special impression or conviction that God gives you in the moment or from a deep study of God's word and doctrine over time. This is certainly a gift that many of us have the opportunity to, to grow in as we grow in our knowledge of God. Moving down to the second list in chapter 12 and verse 28, we find apostles. Now, Scripture speaks of apostles in both a technical limited sense and a more broad sense. The, the broad sense comes simply from the meaning of the word in Scripture, which just means one who is sent out um, a messenger. We might think of missionaries today. In that, and, in, and in that sense, we certainly still have little a apostles, those who are just sent out with the gospel to make disciples. But there were also the 12 disciples Jesus chose, whom he called apostles. And this seemed to be a more technical, closed group. And Paul came to be understood as being one of these as well. They were those who saw the risen Lord, had a special call from God, and had a certain authority in the early church. Now, according to those criteria, no one today is a capital A apostle. 
No one gets to come and say, well, I have a word of God for you, separate from or in addition to what Scripture says, and you must heed it or else. So if someone says to you today, I'm an apostle, just ask, what do you mean by that? Next is teachers. This isn't really a, a defined role or office, but simply those with an ability, a good grasp of doctrine, and an ability to teach it. Elsewhere, pastors and elders are, are told that they must have this, this gift. It's the only gift required of, of pastors and elders. The rest are character traits. And then you get a group of related gifts. So gifts of helping, gifts of administrating, gifts of service. And, and the terms used here for helping and serving are just very, are very broad general terms as we would, you know, as those are English words. There are various ways to help. There are various ways to serve. Again, you might not be able to pinpoint exactly what this gift looks like in your life, but God has or is equipping you to, to serve and help others. Then if you move to Romans 12, uh, we have a few gifts, gifts there. We have one who exhorts. Um, perhaps you have the ability to call others to faithfulness or to repentance in a way that is loving and effective. Not everyone has that ability. Next is one who contributes. So perhaps the way that God has enabled you to, to serve and build up his church is through giving generously. Whether this be financially, you have the means to do that, or whether you are in a season of life where you have time and, and energy to give generously to the church. Either way, if God has given you wealth or has given you time and has put you in a situation to use it, that is a gift of God. He has given you that, not just for you. Next, there's one who leads, pretty self-explanatory. Perhaps you, may, you have the gift of leading people, not just for personal gain or power or prestige, but for the glory of God. And then we have one who does acts of mercy. So perhaps you have a heart for showing mercy and you have eyes to see where those needs are. The church needs you. The church needs that heart and those eyes to help us be more merciful. And then we have the gifts of prophecy and tongues and interpretation of tongues. We're going to return to these in a few weeks when we cover chapter 14, because chapter 14 covers them a bit in a bit more detail. But I do want to just give some explanation today, since they are in the list that we looked at. As you may know, there's a lot of debate about these gifts today. There, were, there are some who, uh, who are cessationists, because they believe that these gifts have ceased. And there, then there are some who are con continuationists, and there are some other terms out there, but some who are continuationists because these, they believe these gifts have continued. So first, tongues. In 1 Corinthians 12, 18, and then in 28 and 29, you see this gift, and it's called various kinds of tongues. Now, the word used here for tongue simply means a tongue, like literally a physical tongue. Um, but obviously, there's another there's a more uh, um, figurative use here. Just as we would say in English, we're talking about languages. We're talking about speech. And specifically, this has to do with the ability to speak in a language that you don't know. 
or unknown to the speaker. Now, there's a big debate about whether tongues are real human languages or not any language known to mankind, perhaps an angelic language or something like that. Certainly in Acts 2, the first instance that we see this gift, it, it was real human languages, and those around heard the gospel being proclaimed in all of their languages. But I don't think this has to be the case for all tongues. For one, it says various kinds of tongues, perhaps implying not every gift is the same. Secondly, in the next chapter, Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, implying that there could be both human languages involved here and angelic languages. And as we'll see in chapter 14, there seems to be a place for tongues both in private prayer, where no interpretation is necessary, and in corporate gatherings of the church, where interpretation is required. And then along with this gift, you have the gift of interpretation of tongues. This is the ability, as you can plainly see, typically in the church service, to interpret a message given in the tongue so that the church may understand and gain some benefit from the message. And then we have prophecy. Now, defining prophecy is tough. Uh, perhaps a very basic definition that fits with Scripture and, and most would probably agree with is a spoken message originating from God. Spoken message originating from God. Uh, we often think prophecy is about telling the future, and sometimes that's the case, but that's not always the case, even in the Old Testament. Sometimes prophecy is simply reminding people of what God has already said. It's a lot of what the prophets do. And the big question in regards to this gift is this. If prophecy is still an active gift, what kind of authority does it have? What kind of authority does the message, the spoken message, have? And it is this question of authority that separates these two gifts, in a way, from all of the rest. In a way, we shouldn't really separate them. We should just see them all as various ways God's work. But in trying to work through this, what this looks like, we have this question of authority. Because prophecy in Scripture means speaking a word from God. In the Old Testament, the prophet would say something like, Thus says the Lord. And then what followed was authoritative and binding as the very words of God. Similarly, when you think about tongues combined with an interpretation, this is a word from God. So, what do we do with this? Where do we stand on this? Well, we have various opinions on this, even in this church. It's certainly not something that we expect, expect complete agreement on, and it's not something we require a certain position on for membership. But I'll tell you briefly where, where I stand um, and why. And the current elders are in uh, basic agreement on this, though maybe some minor differences. I'll start with what I'm most confident in from Scripture. The first thing I am confident in is that Scripture is sufficient and authoritative, and no other words, whether prophecy or tongues or interpretation or supposed revelations or words from God, is on the same level as Scripture. And so practically, if someone comes to you and says, I have a word of God for you, or God told me to tell you this, I think you can consider it and weigh it and compare it to Scripture, but you needn't assume 
that it is an inspired and binding word such that Scripture is. In fact, you shouldn't. Why I think Scripture is authoritative and sufficient is a longer topic for another day, but suffice it to say, historically, when people have claimed to have fresh revelations from God, it leads to cults and it leads to people getting hurt. We believe that authority rests, first and foremost, in God and His Word, which is the Bible. In the local church, God gives some limited authority to qualified pastor elders to teach the Bible, and also to the church as a whole to oversee its membership and faithfulness. But we don't think the possession of any certain gift, prophecy, tongues, or whatever, grants somebody authority in the church. The second thing I am confident in, but not on the same level as the sufficiency of Scripture, is that Scripture does not lead us to expect certain gifts to have ceased. Now, I understand the argument people make for this, including people in this church, whom I respect, and I grant that there is an argument to be made for this, which relies on Scripture. Usually a couple things are pointed out in making this argument. First, it is observed that much of the prophecy and tongues as well as the healings and miracles that go on today are either not proven or provable, are not done within the guidelines of Scripture, or are performed by some of the most sleazy, self-seeking, and unaccountable people out there. And I would agree. But secondly, the biblical argument for the cessationist perspective is that these more miraculous gifts were given for a time for authenticating the apostles and their writings, many of which became Scripture. But now that we have Scripture, we no longer need these gifts. They were signs for the first century as the gospel was first being proclaimed, but with the Bible being completed, they have fulfilled their purpose. We have the Word of God, which is sufficient. We don't need further words from God. And Scripture does speak of God bearing witness to the gospel as it was first proclaimed. In Hebrews 2, it says, by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I do think there's a place for saying that in certain times and periods, God chooses to use more miraculous signs and wonders. We see this in the life of Moses, during the lives of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, and certainly in the time of Jesus and shortly thereafter. And, and we shouldn't expect that every period subsequently in history, including our own, will include the same miracles at the same frequency. However, it is another thing to make Scripture say that certain gifts were only active until Scripture was completed. 1 Corinthians assumes that these gifts will be for the church, for the benefit of the church, and not just for the apostles, and also not just for evangelistic purposes, to authenticate the gospel, but for the benefit of the church gathered together, just like all the other gifts. Paul will go on to say here that prophecies and tongues will cease. There will be a time that comes when they will cease, but he says that that will be when the perfect comes, when we see face-to-face -face pointing to the return of Jesus. Now, let me just say this. As a church, we don't expect full agreement on this second point about the continuation or the cessation of certain gifts. We, however, would urge you to agree on the first point about the sufficiency of Scripture, and we do require agreement on that for membership.
The difficulty, of course, is how to combine these two convictions. How do we allow a place for prophecy in tongues in a way that doesn't undermine Scripture? Which is important. We're going to wait until chapter 14 to fully unpack that. But let me just say this. You're all on the edge of your seat. Um, let me just say this. Too often, these more miraculous gifts become a measure or a barometer of the health of a church. Or a measure or barometer of whether God is really present and working. And there is the assumption that if we don't have certain physical, visible miracles happening or people aren't being given certain words or gifts from God, that God is, isn't at work. And so we need to go seek after these things because we want God to be at work. We need, want to be a healthy church. And that thinking is absolutely wrong and unbiblical and dangerous. God speaks and works primarily through His Word, which is the Bible, through His Spirit working through His Word. Uh, we are told that the Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. God said, Is not my Word like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? It comes in power and accomplishes great and mighty things. We are told that the gospel message of Jesus, the Word of the cross, is the power of God. And so God works and does miraculous things as His Word is proclaimed and He changes hearts and lives. And this Word is sufficient, such that we don't need any new or fresh words from God. Now, God also works through prayer, and He works through His people. And He works through His people as we gather together, as we love and serve one another, including with the various gifts that he gives us. So we certainly want to be open to the various ways that God may choose to work. We want to encourage you, as Paul will go on to say in chapter 14, to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. It's a good thing to desire spiritual gifts. But we don't want to demand that God work in certain ways through certain gifts at certain frequencies. What this does is cause us to be impatient with the ways that God is working, even now. If His Word is being taught and applied and lived out, if we are discipling one another, if you have pastors and elders who are shepherding you, God is at work, even in times when we struggle to see it. Our greatest task is to continue to make much of Christ crucified, the gospel message, which is the very power and wisdom of God. Our greatest task is to continue to peer into the wondrous mysteries and glories of God's plan of salvation through Jesus, the goodness of a God who would give himself to die for us, and to continue to believe that there is no more powerful message out there, more impressive message out there, even when most of the world finds us foolish, which was the point of the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And if God wills to do other things, other miracles and healings, to give gifts of prophecy and tongues, to encourage the church and proclaim the glory of Christ, so be it. But that's not the focus, and that's not the heart of the power of God working among us, and that's not the measure of a healthy church. So we're going to take communion now. 
And it is in the communion that we begin to understand the health of a church. Because in communion, we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. And in doing this together, we are asking one another to hold us accountable to this confession. We are asking one another for the encouragement and the exhortation, the love and the service and the giftings of one another to help us live out our common confession. We don't do this alone. We confess this together and we live it out together. Let's pray.